In his 22 years at Amazon, including his role as the first CEO of the company's worldwide consumer business, Jeff Wilkie always kept the place that he was raised and the people he grew up with in the back of his mind. You know, I always wanted to lead in a way that if I went back and people, you know, from high school could ask me anything about what I was encountering, the decisions I made, how I made them, that they'd be proud of me. Wilkie grew up in Green Tree, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. In addition to shaping his values as a leader, his hometown gave him a firsthand view of the decline of the steel industry. It was both a cloudy and a smoky city in the early 70s. Uh, a lot of that changed as the industry moved. But of course, the industry movement was so catastrophic that it left behind, you know, a different kind of cloudiness in the city, you know, that took some time to, you know, shine away. In the decades that followed, Pittsburgh's role in the rise of robotics and artificial intelligence have made the city an emblem of U.S. resilience and reinvention. Since leaving Amazon last year, Wilkie has returned to his industrial roots as the chairman and co-founder of Rebuild Manufacturing, a Massachusetts-based company that's seeking to revive the U.S. manufacturing industry. The role has given him direct insights into the way that technology can advance that mission. I think robotics and AI are necessary in bringing manufacturing back, including to Pittsburgh, but it's, they're not sufficient. We're going to need robotics and AI to complement skilled humans. So yes, there are a lot of challenges, but I think when we get through this, we have the opportunity to create all kinds of advantage for Americans that will persist for a long time. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. I caught up with Jeff Wilkie as part of my prep for GeekWire's recent return trip to Pittsburgh. We talked about his upbringing and history in the city and his outlook for the future of robotics, AI, automation, and U.S. manufacturing. But we started with the basics of his life story. Where were you born and what neighborhood did you grow up in? <laughs> uh, I, I was born uh, at Allegheny General Hospital in 1966. And uh, which is right across the river from the city and the downtown area. And uh, my parents met in a, a part of the city called Sheridan. And they had moved, just moved to Green Tree, which is right off the parkway. If you came from the airport, it's the, it's the town right before the tunnel that has the big water tower. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, we grew up in this, I played baseball in the shadow of that water tower kind of growing up. And um we lived in a house that was at the end of a, a long hill, really close to the town of Carnegie. Mm -hmm. And then we later moved to a different place where I spent most of my, my time. But all in, all in that same town, Green Tree, the public high school is called Keystone Oaks High School, and then left in 1985 to go to Princeton. Is the house that you first grew up on at the end of that street still there? Yeah, I, uh, I, I went so interesting. When my father passed, years ago we went back for the you know for the service and memorial and stuff and i part of the kind of closure for me was spending some days there and just while well, we drove to sheridan where my father's family had a uh, an auto repair shop it was called the gc wilkie garage hmm. and uh in sheridan and um it's still there it's a it's actually a used appliance store but it says GC Wilkie Garage on top. And, and so we went in there and talked to the, the guy who runs that store. And, and then we drove to that, the end of that road and knocked on the door. 
this is just a classic Pittsburgh story. This nice guy came to the door and uh, I said, you know, hey, I know this is going to seem weird, but I grew up in this house. And, you know, I remember there was red shag carpeting on the uh, walls of my dad had put this in on the walls in the basement. There was a, he had had an ironsmith make a, like a, almost like a prison or, or jail gates to let you in and out of the bar area. Cause he didn't want the kids in there. And you know, that was, there's some like stuff like that. And he's like, Oh yeah, it's still all here. He goes, do you want to come in? And I was like, yes. So we, uh, we walked in and had a chance to kind of, and much of it was exactly the way I remembered it. And uh, that was so cool. But so Pittsburgh that he'd be like, yeah, come on in. You know, um, he pointed out some stuff that he changed and uh, I saw some stuff that I remembered from a long time ago. So pretty fun. Have you ever heard the song, The House That Built Me by Miranda Lambert? Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. video, it's what you're saying yeah. is reminding me of that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I don't know if it ends up in a country uh, video or maybe a classic rock video of some kind, but, but yeah, it was uh, special. So Pittsburgh in the sixties and the seventies, how would you describe the place? Well, it, it was going through a time of transition and I, you know, I don't remember the sixties really. My first memory of Pittsburgh was the day that Roberto Clemente died. Hmm. Uh, I think it was right around new year's. Um, they, you know, they had uh, won the world series. I think uh, he had, he, I know he had hit his 3000th hit. It was a really oddly warm winter day. And we were, my brother and I were playing T-ball in the little circle at the end of the the street and my grandfather was there, I think, and somebody came out of the house and, and gave the news. And it, it's like one of those moments that sort of froze because he was, a you know, I was totally into baseball. I'd fall asleep listening to Bob Prince to, you know, call the games at night. And um, it just kind of hit me. It was the first person that I cared about that had passed away. And, um, and so I, I almost sort of remember the color of the sky and, you know, Pittsburgh at that time was still, there was still a lot of industry. It was both a cloudy and a smoky city in the early 70s. Uh, a lot of that changed as the industry moved. But of course, the industry movement was so catastrophic that it left behind, you know, a different kind of cloudiness in the city, you know, that took some time to, to you know, shine away. The, the steel industry especially, but all of the industry that was there was so tightly bound with the community uh, and I was odd by it. I mean, I, we would drive by the, the rusting steel mills every time our family drove to Kennywood. Local amusement park. So many of my memories are from this place. It's, it's crazy. It's got, it's got these old wooden roller, co roller coasters that are actually pretty killer. And it was, it, it was a sad place. And the mood of despair was really lifted in the mid-70s by the rise of the Steelers banks. And I, I think one of the reasons that Steelers fans, my age at least, are so loyal is that no matter where in the world they live, they just remember how deeply they felt that this team was able to lift the spirits of the entire town. And it, it just, it's like in slow motion when you're young, I think, but it was something for people to rally around and feel proud of. Um, and uh, that you know, kind of left a, an indelible mark. So I'll be a Steeler fan for the rest of my life. Did you go back to your elementary school? It was my high school, actually. So I was Eastern Oaks High School. And I just, I wanted to, you know, they asked me to do a all- student talk and i thought that'd be fun but i remember sitting through all student talks by people in their 50s when i was in high school and it was like i i don't you know if i talk about leadership you know that's hard to do you know to a bunch of teenagers and um i had some nightmares about how that might go so i 
I asked them, hey, could you, could you find students who are totally into computers, hmm. whether they're taking courses in computers, they just aspire to learn more about it. And, and then I can tailor a talk to the things that drove my interest in computing from a pretty early age and what I did in high school to kind of, you know, hone those skills and so on. And um, I, it was pretty special. I had a great interaction with students. It felt really nice to be back. As you're growing up in this place, are, are there personality traits of yours, characteristics of your approach to life that you can trace back to the environment that you grew up in? Well, you know, in addition to Steel and Steelers, I, I met really good people in Pittsburgh. And they inspired me in school. Uh, we talked about my, my high school. I, the, it was a public school where most kids weren't focused on a four-year college. But the teachers there really cared. And I, I learned to love math and chemistry and especially computers. I had this elementary school teacher that introduced us to uh, computing through like a dial-up modem that I, I think was connected to Carnegie Mellon's mainframes. And, you know, we did the usual, you know, print something funny, you know, go to 10 and repeat. And, you know, it was like, look at that. The, the printer just keeps printing the same thing. But it, it just communicating with a, with a computer like that just... It, it sort of froze in my memory. And then I had a couple of other teachers that, that along the way introduced me to some more complicated things in that, that space. And, uh, you know, super grateful for that. I, I met lifelong friends there. Um, I think some people will leave their home and sort of never want to go back. They reinvent themselves. And for me, you know, I still get together every year with a half dozen childhood friends that have gone to different places. Some of them live there. Um, and, you know, I, the thread that's, that's through all of these people is that they taught me that what mattered most was how you treated others, you know, not where you fell in any particular pecking order. And, and maybe some of this comes from so many people working in environments, industrial environments, where there, there is a pecking order, you know, you start on the shop floor, you, you do the basic work, and then you kind of work your way up. And, you know, depending on where you might be in, the, in that pecking order in certain places, certain cities, maybe in the country, you might be treated differently. But Pittsburgh was a place where everybody treated everybody else with dignity. Uh, I felt I'm incredibly grateful for that because I think it, it lodged in my, my brain and my heart. And as I've tried to lead over the years, I had a great mentor years ago that, that told me, reminded me that followers choose their leaders. And I think Followers want to choose people that treat them with respect and dignity and, you know, and, and who are authentic with them. And I've made a ton of mistakes along the way, but the, the part that has resonated with followers has probably come from the, the authenticity that I learned in Pittsburgh. Can you trace your decision to wear flannel shirts in the fourth quarter, which I think is probably rightly or wrongly the thing that's <laughs> it's so visual, it's just so associated with you and your tenure at Amazon in solidarity with the fulfillment center workers. Can you trace that to your Pittsburgh roots? Totally. And in fact, the, the last tweet that I made, uh, my sort of goodbye tweet had a closet that was empty except for a flannel shirt, a Troy Palomalu uh, Jersey, which is kind of hidden. And I did that because, you know, rather uh, accomplished stealer who retired. Uh, so I wanted to just leave a clue to see if people would respond to that. But that shirt I bought in 11th grade in Pittsburgh at the South Hills Village Mall <laughs> at the Gap. So clearly it's that whole sense of getting in there and getting the job done. I mean, where, where did the flannel shirts come from in that way? Well, I wore them through high school because 
that was how you you dress that was you know it was a it was a blue collar town and um it felt comfortable and when i first started in manufacturing jobs after grad school i would wear those shirts it was i had work that was outside and i would wear those you know shirts and um at one point i had a uh, a um a guy that was working in uh the the one of the plants was very senior uh, hourly person and um we had i knew his son and he pulled me aside at the lunch table i was wearing kind of one of those shirts that was a little disheveled and and wrinkled and and he said he said hey jeff and i said uh mr Evans, hi um what can i what can i do for you he said you know you have a fancy mba like my son right i said yeah his son had gone to duke um he said you know why are you wearing a crappy shirt like that? <laughs> and I said, he's like, nobody, you're not fooling anybody. I'm like, well, thank you. Thanks for the feedback. But, um, you know, I do think it, it, uh, it felt comfortable for me, which is kind of why I did it. And, um, you know, especially in the Amazon years, it, it helped to make a connection with the folks out on the floor at Peak. And it, it actually helped, especially to remind the people in the corporate environment that there were all these people working really hard on behalf of customers that we didn't see when you were walking around the corporate headquarters that were out in the field. Um, and so when I started that tradition, it gave me a prompt so that anytime I, you know, I it was entering a room or people saw me entering a building, they'd see it and, you know, it would strike up a conversation about, hey, how are things going for the folks in the field? Coming up next, Pittsburgh, Seattle, Silicon Valley, and Amazon HQ2. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Jeff Wilkie after this. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Were you able, before you graduated from high school, to witness the beginnings of Pittsburgh's technology, robotics, and just general resurgence in the field of innovation? I would say not yet. So I think it was it was beginning. And of course, at Pitt and CNU in particular, there were both in medicine and in, um, you know, in computing, the beginning of that transformation uh, or re- reinvigoration was was happening. But, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to, to go up somewhere else for college. So I wasn't focused on CMU. I was aware of what was happening there. And that uh, there was some pretty cool stuff coming out of it. But I didn't you know, I didn't pay attention in the way you probably would if you were planning to go to a college, you know, as a teenager. Um, and, you know, 1985, there were, there were a lot of transformational things happening, but you could argue that at that time, most of the transformational things were happening in Seattle with the surge of Microsoft and, you know, around Silicon Valley. I know you pay close attention. As you said, you go back. Do you have any thoughts on what the ingredients were that enabled Pittsburgh to have this new life beyond the steel mills? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, um, you know, I start by thinking about the families in the last wealth generation period. So go back to, you know, oil was discovered in Oil City 
in the late 1800s, you know, just north of Pittsburgh, which was kind of the beginning of this, uh, that epic. And, um, and so they, you know, you had oil technology and money that, you know, and banking that came from that and then steel, and then, you know, ultimately medicine, computing, AI, robotics. And the, in that first kind of wave of entrepreneurialism and wealth creation, it, Pittsburgh had the extraordinary uh, generosity of the Carnegies, the Mellons, the Fricks, the Shenleys, the Hillmans, the Heinzes, the Falks, the Kaufmans. I mean, all these people, you know, poured their fortunes back into the city and they did it into the city proper, into the downtown. So when you see Heinz Hall, when you see the, you know, all of the art venues, when you see the museums, I think for its size, you know, Pittsburgh punches way above its weight on culture that's available uh, to everybody. And that was the whole idea. You know, Carnegie's whole idea of the library and museum was to make all of this knowledge available to as many people as possible from whatever, you know, walk of life they, they came. And it was pretty visionary. And I think building that into the fabric of the city in the early 1900s and then having the long view that universities invariably provide. So having both Pitt and CMU in a relatively you know, smaller city coupled with this cultural wealth, it just, it allowed it to kind of ride out troughs along the way. It had a couple of renaissances. They made a couple of you know, architectural mistakes. There's a great book called Smoketown uh, that you might find interesting that it kind of traces uh, the history of, of uh, among other things, the black community in Pittsburgh, which was thriving. I mean, thriving in a whole bunch of interesting ways, you know, sports and music and culture. And, you know, unfortunately, when they built the Civic Arena, they kind of raised a whole bunch of that cultural area. Um, so it, it had moments where it you know, wasn't its best uh, self, but it always it always pulled through for the long run, unlike some of the cities, you know, in the Midwest that weren't able to do that and where sort of the flight to the suburbs never came back. There was, you know, certainly the suburbs grew in, in Pittsburgh, but it's like, it's a, it's a collection of neighborhoods. It's almost like the city's like a federated collection of neighborhoods, um, you know, not unlike New York, frankly. And, um, and because, you know, because of the landmass uh, constraints and Pittsburgh has that with the hills and the rivers. Um, and and it, so it kept a vibrant population, culture and arts, and learning all in a dense area, which I think is the, that's the core of what you need to survive uh, the volatility of decades. It's funny you should mention Smoketown. It was published back in January, 2018. It was written by Mark Whitaker. And by chance, our first visit, GeekWire's first visit was in February, 2018. I saw Mark Whitaker speak at a Pittsburgh Post-Gazette forum uh -huh. in Pittsburgh. Now that you say it, I'm going to go back, look at that book again and really give it a good read before I go back and visit. It just has a, it has such a rich cultural history for its size. And, and again, I, I think the forward thinking of the, the people that led the city in the early 1900s uh, really paid off. How would you compare and contrast Pittsburgh in that regard and any other really with Seattle and Silicon Valley? And as you're talking about the philanthropists that were so prominent in Pittsburgh, I can't help but think of... Bill Gates and Paul Allen and the different approaches they took where Bill Gates has taken a global approach, whereas Paul Allen, frankly, mirrored more closely what you're talking about in Pittsburgh. What are your thoughts in that regard as you might compare and contrast, particularly Seattle and Pittsburgh? Well, Seattle and Pittsburgh have a lot in common. Uh, they both have great universities. They've both been powered by immigrant communities. 
um, and by industry. I mean, they're, they're both at their core kind of blue collar towns, although, you know, Seattle is a tech town now, but, you know, it's both actually. But, you know, um, I, I, I gave a little talk to the chamber some years ago and I drew this comparison. I think there were some folks in the audience who understood the comparison. Some who were like, Pittsburgh, what are you talking about? Pittsburgh, we're, a, you know, we're a tech town. Like, well, Pittsburgh is too. Um, you know, like Pittsburgh, Seattle's been reborn a bunch of times. Um, it, the, there are a number of families. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the Allen family. There's the families that built Packard and Nordstrom and, you know, Boeing and Costco and Alaska Airlines and Warehouser and Amazon. And all of them cared about the city and, and kind of endowed its arts and learning in a way that, you know, maybe punches above its weight. Um, unfortunately, both have about the same number of sunny days, <laughs> not nearly enough. <laughs> uh, there's a reason that I was comfortable when I got to Seattle with the weather is, you know, uh, Pittsburgh has, you know, some cloudy days. The nice thing is in the winter, it can, you know, it snows um, and it's often cloudy and not as rainy, you know, not the drizzle that you get in Seattle for much of the winter and spring. But there, there's a lot of cloudy days. Um, you know, San Francisco shares some things with Seattle and Pittsburgh in terms of industrial roots, the importance of immigrants hilly terrain, great universities, and, and terrific technologists. Um, I, and, you know, I, I think Seattle and San Francisco definitely feel West Coast to me. Pittsburgh feels like the gateway to the Midwest, you know, whatever that means. Housing prices are way better in Pittsburgh than either one of those. Um, but here's the biggest similarity between Pittsburgh and Seattle, in my view, and the biggest difference, those two versus Silicon Valley. And that's that both Pittsburgh uh, and Seattle, um, you know, they'll say it the other way, Silicon Valley has way more swagger than Seattle or Pittsburgh. It just does. Um, all three of them are tenacious, but I found a special kind of humility in Pittsburgh that um, I often found in, in Seattle too. This is fascinating for me in part because you were on our minds during our first visit. And for folks who didn't follow this, GeekWire back in 2018, in the midst of the Amazon HQ2 search, we were sitting around at happy hour. And, uh, you know, after a couple of rounds, we had got this great idea like, hey, Amazon is doing an HQ2 search. Why can't GeekWire do an HQ2 search? So we did our own RFP. We got responses from 10 different cities around the country, Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, Sacramento, California, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and CMU, Carnegie Mellon University, their computer science department, submitted the bid, quote, <laughs> which we promised to bring, I think, five jobs and about $3,000. That's awesome. <laughs> five jobs. And so that's how we ended up establishing for one month a temporary HQ2, GeekWire HQ2 in Pittsburgh. We were down in Lawrenceville. Back then, you were on our minds because people were theorizing that because you were a high-ranking executive at Amazon, Pittsburgh might be the choice, especially at the time, because there was a, the thought that you might be succeeding Jeff Bezos as CEO someday. Can you tell us what was going through your mind at the time now that I, I can actually talk to you about this? Like, were you sort of putting your thumb on the scale for Pittsburgh back then, as people might have been uh, theorizing? <laughs> Well, I, I, and you're not the only one who theorizes, by the way. Um, I've met some friends that have become really close because they actually made bets based on this theory. Uh, and they're, you know, they either won or lost, depending on which side they, they fell on. But, uh, you know, I, 
Look, I took my duties as a as an executive there, you know, very seriously. Um, one of the things I'm proudest of in the 22 years I was there is I I worked for a company with very high integrity, and I felt like I was afforded the opportunity to lead the way. You know, I always wanted to lead in a way that if I went back and people, you know, from high school could ask me anything about what I was encountering, the decisions I made, how I made them, that they'd be proud of me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I left, I had the chance to leave without, you know, any exceptions to, to that. I mean, I didn't make the right decisions all the time, I'm sure, but but I never made decisions that I, that I felt like, you know, were anywhere close to a gray area uh, for me. And um, so I, I tried not to let my strong feelings for Pittsburgh bias the decisions I had to make along the way as we grew Amazon, and there were others. But certainly when we were selecting HQ2, I spoke up in favor of exploring Pittsburgh. I wanted to make sure that it was on the list, that everybody knew how you know, capable the university environment was, that it was graduating a lot of computer scientists, that it was a great place to start a family, you know, great cost of living, uh, terrific environment. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't put my thumb on the scale because I, I didn't think that was the right thing to do. And, and I thought, you know, it was the right leadership move when the team that was doing the search recommended someone else that I, you know, stand up and accept the recommendation, um, because they had worked really hard to be objective. And I thought that was the right thing to do. I was delighted. Oh, we had some logistics planning models that determine, you know, where FCs and uh, delivery nodes and stuff are put. And they started recommending significant investment in the Pittsburgh area, kind of on their own. And I was psyched, of course, and I really enjoyed it. My first plant visit, this is kind of interesting, was to a delivery station in Carnegie that was located less than a mile from that end of street house that I was born into. It was really fun to be in a place where everybody had a sealer shirt on. <laughs> That's great. Well, and I want to be clear. We were aware, of course, of the conspiracy theories that that might be where Amazon's HQ2 would go. But our selection was actually based on a different factor in terms of where we wanted to spend a month. And granted, it's not like choosing a place to make $5 billion worth of investments. But, you know, a month of our time, we wanted to make sure it was interesting. It was really the robotics and the different style of technology that's there. It was so eye-opening because on the one hand, there wasn't the depth of tech company. There wasn't the T-Mobile, the Valve, the Bungie. You know, it's really an embarrassment of riches in some ways in Seattle. It's not Silicon Valley in Seattle, but it's for a site like ours. It's it was it was eye-opening. I mean, Duolingo was like the biggest company we got to cover in in the tech world when we were there. But the research, the robotics, the fact that there were Uber self-driving cars driving around on the streets. I mean, it was fascinating. And that's the main reason we picked it. We knew that it probably was not going to be HQ2 for Amazon. I want to be clear about that. Um, But what you said just now about the fact that you wanted to conduct yourself as an Amazon executive in a way that you could remain proud of your actions to the people that you grew up with, that's really telling it feels very Midwest. It feels very small town to me. Yeah, it's a Pittsburgh thing, though. I, I mean, I'm, I've met executives and leaders and, you know, regular people who have left Pittsburgh over the years, and they all have that same thing. Like, I mean, not all. I, I've met people who, for whatever reason, just wanted to get out and never go back. But the vast majority of people I've met have this just really soulful 
attachment to the place and, and they care. They really do care what it would think of them. Next up, robotics, automation, manufacturing, and jobs. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Jeff Wilkie after this break. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. So as you think about robotics, and you're now focused in part on manufacturing through your role with a company called Rebuild Manufacturing that we've talked about in the past, is there a chance for Pittsburgh to essentially reconnect with its roots as manufacturing attempts to come back to the U.S., which is a focus of what you're doing, through the implementation of automation and robotics? Is that a stretch to think about things coming full circle in that way in Pittsburgh? I think that'll play a role. I, I think robotics and AI are necessary in bringing manufacturing back, including to Pittsburgh, but it's, they're not sufficient. We're going to need robotics and AI to complement skilled humans who are going to work alongside them. And more and more, I'm, I'm thinking this way. I, I was just at, a, at Eric Bernolson's uh, di Digital Economy Lab advisory board over the last couple of days, and uh, he used these words, complement versus substitute, and I, I really like them. I think that, that is the model that he's been writing about this for a while, but I think he's right that robotics and AI will complement, and we need to think about them as complementing human work, complementing skilled humans, making work better, making human work more, more fulfilling, more valuable. Um, I don't think it's going to substitute for, for, um, for all human work, but it's, it's not enough. U.S. manufacturing companies need to get more serious about computer science. So not just you know robotics and AI as part of computer science, but computer science more broadly. And that includes the design of products with software built into them, um, utilizing software for product and process design. And, you know, they're not there yet. There's a, most manufacturers that I've met over the last year and a half have treated computer science as kind of a, you know, third class engineering discipline. You know, we do electrical engineering, we do chemical engineering, we do mechanical engineering, we do material science. Um, and I think they need to say, we do computer science. You know, at, in the same, you know, I, I, you could argue on the other side that the Valley in Seattle is like, we do computer science and like, stay away from anything on the balance sheet, stay away from the physical world. It's hard. Um, and so I would give them a different, you know, talk, but I think manufacturing uh, will need to be better at it. And I think Pittsburgh is really well positioned with CMU to lead the way there. Um, I think we're going to, to bring manufacturing more fully back, we're going to need to use technological advances beyond those fields though. We're going to need material science advancements, process design advancements, bioengineering. Um, we're also going to be able to deploy. The cool thing is all these operational tech, uh, operational excellence tools like lean, um, defect reduction, theory of constraints, kind of six sigma defect reduction. These things help build Amazon and they're going to help rebuild the capability to be a world-class manufacturer with the right cost and quality in the U.S., um, and the good news is they haven't left completely. So we already have that capability in the U.S. It's been sort of, it's around and we can 
use it to bolster the companies that again may come to Pittsburgh or somewhere else. And, and then Pittsburgh's going to have some advantages like lower transportation costs. I mean, the whole country has this. We don't have to ship stuff from China uh, or Asia. You know, you're closer to the markets in the East Coast. You have, I, I'm certain that American companies will take better care of intellectual property of their of their um, their partners. And I'm really hopeful that more aggressive use of government procurement rules will encourage the largest buyer in the U.S. to buy American, including you know buying from Pittsburgh companies. You and Miles Arnone and I had a real great deep dive on a podcast last year that I'll link folks to on the whole topic of manufacturing. But it seems like even in the time since, we've seen supply chain sh- shortages and labor shortages change a lot of nuances of this conversation if you look at automation. Whereas before, just as an example, as you're saying, the concern would have been about taking jobs away. It feels like it's needed now. And whereas before, economics of shipping from China were clearly on the mind, now it's like, well, we can't even get the stuff. We can't even get the raw materials here. How have things changed in this conversation from your perspective over even the past six 12 months? Well, I I think those events have confirmed that the work we're doing at Rebuild Manufacturing and other people who are working on U.S. manufacturing, including all the semiconductor conversations, that we're on the right track. I I mean, you and I talked before, I continue to believe that the strength of our nation depends on our economy. I think good jobs still matter. And businesses that transform less valuable inputs into more valuable ones robustly really matter. And manufacturing is the industry that contributes the highest combination of both of those things, great jobs and really valuable transformations. And without it, we're proving we're dependent on countries who have invested in, in these areas and focused on those priorities. So uh, I'm, I'm super excited about the opportunity ahead. You know, you know I'm a, an optimist about most things. And so yes, there are a lot of challenges. Yes, the supply chain is tough. Yes, there's inflation, you know, that's partly driven by some of the challenges we're seeing in supply chain, among other things. Um, and these these make it really tough right now for a lot of people. But I think when we get through this, we have the opportunity to create all kinds of advantage for Americans that will persist for a long time. And um, I remain super excited about the opportunity and really excited about the progress that, that Rebuild Manufacturing has made so far since the last time we talked. When you look at the current state of AI and robotics and automation, what do you think are the most promising applications of AI and robotics and automation? Is it self-driving cars? Is it something else? And what are the biggest challenges that need to be overcome in that field of technology? Well, I I don't think it, it you know, of course, autonomous vehicles of all kinds are going to be, are going to get better and better. We're going to be moving closer and closer to that world. I don't, it's hard to predict, you know, how far out it is because that last little bit of you know, edge cases is going to be really hard to knock down before we could have total autonomy. But I've been really encouraged by some of the recent AI advances. You know, GPT-3, I'm sure you followed, DALI-2. They show incredible progress in what really large AI networks can do, like, like you know, vast AI networks. Um, the robotics teams that I worked with at Amazon when I left were making huge progress, even as Amazon continued to hire aggressively human workers. So it's, you know, back to that world where you're going to both deploy a bunch of robots and as many humans as want work. And right now, you know, we have historically low unemployment. So it's, it's actually good that we're thinking about automation to complement that. 
Um, I had the good fortune to do some advisory work with Alex Wong at Scale.ai. And it, that's given me a front row seat to some of the most important applications of AI out there, you know, certainly autonomous vehicles, but a bunch of others. And I keep seeing examples where AI algorithms are beating the incumbent approaches that are rooted in other mathematical realms really quickly. And we don't have self-driving cars now. So that's a that's an AI case that's completely new, but we have all these other places where around our world, where there are mathematical algorithms that are doing stuff for us. The simplest one is, it's not really a mathematical algorithm, but your thermostat, if you don't have a nest, if you have a nest, it's mathematical, if you don't have a nest, it's a really simple control thing, but um, those very simple or you know arbitrarily complex mathematical algorithms that have helped us in our world, the current best algorithm just keeps getting beaten by AI over and over again in countless industries. And to me, that's super encouraging because the, these are real improvements. I mean, we're getting improvements in quality, reductions in cost, which means these technologies will be more available to more people. The AI that I'm seeing is eventually going to be not only helpful in humans communicating, mobility, human health. I mean, the, the things in front of us with the application, you know, if you think about the work that DeepMind and David Baker's Institute for Protein Design kind of almost in the same month, you know, in protein folding revealed, we're, we're going to be able to characterize the most complex system that we know of, which is the, you know, kind of life uh, with the help of machines using AI in ways that just were unimaginable a short time ago. So, you know, and then you look at robotics as a, as a physical case. Over the last year, I've toured a couple of robotics facilities, and, I, and I've been really impressed with the progress just in the, the last year. There's still a long way to go. So, you know, I, I don't see robots that are, you know, that look like humans, that are doing exactly what humans do, that have the ability to see the things we can see in the way that we can. And, you know, the, the things someone recently told me that I don't know if this is actually true, but it sounds reasonable that 80 percent of our cognitive power goes to all of these things that we don't even think about, you know, locomotion, the balance, locomotion, speech, you know, uh, cognitive processing and so on. And um, those are all the things that are hard for machines to do. So it's hard for us to do arithmetic, to use the other 20% to do math and, you know, really complicated, uh, you know, science and really fast calculations. But boy, the other 80% that we do so naturally that evolution built for us, machines have a long way to go there. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I remain optimistic. I think AI is going to continue to improve our world and we have a lot more work to do. To your point specifically there, Jeff, I think the canonical example is one that you probably witnessed firsthand of the challenges that robots and machines have in replicating human perception and judgment. And that was the picking challenge, right? Absolutely. Can you explain yeah. that and where we are on that, or at least what you know about where we are on that challenge? What is the picking challenge? Well, the picking challenge was something that the robotics team at, at Amazon did with universities kind of wrapped across the country, actually globally. And the goal was to get robots to pick as effectively as humans. And picking is basically you have a shelf of merchandise and someone has to go into that shelf and grab the item that the customer ordered and put it into a box or a tote. Uh, that's picking. And, you know, humans are really good at it. They're really good at seeing if you have a, a shelf and there's a whole bunch of different things, cans and jars and whatever, you know, you're pretty good at finding the thing, reaching around, grab, you know, the, grabbing other things, grabbing it, putting it into a, 
you tell her to bring it out to the counter and machines are terrible at this. They're just not good at it yet. And I've seen some real progress here, but all of the real progress still depends too much on humans for edge cases. Um, they're still too slow. They, you know, shadows get in the way. There's a bunch of, you know, hard problems to solve still. So uh, I don't see evidence that we're right around the corner from, you know, all picking being done by, by machines. But I think over time, you know, that that'll be another area where certain kinds of picks that are simple and repeatable and clear could be done by machine and you have the humans, you know, work on the harder ones. Catch me up on where rebuild manufacturing is today. Well, I'm super excited about it. Lots of progress. We completed our ninth acquisition earlier this year. So we now have over 250 engineers. We have 600 employees in eight states. And we've, we've started to really zero in on our areas of focus. We're trying to support customers and designing products in a couple of areas. So reducing weight through really innovative materials like composites instead of metals, supporting electrification. So as we decarbonize by electrifying the grid, there's such an opportunity to, to make components and subcomponents and, and you know, finished product across a whole range of industries. We're focused on mobility, so everything from scooters to new aircraft designs and enabling satellites and space launches to be more effective. Um, and then the last thing we got into with a couple of the latest acquisitions is medical devices. So, you know, I, I made the rounds, I think right after we talked or just before, I made the rounds with the VCs across the country to let them know the kinds of capabilities that we were building. And the idea was that we could support their hard tech investments, um, you know, their hardware companies that maybe started with an interesting product, they could make N of one, but they had no idea how to design it to make a lot of them. And I just left them, hey, you know, if you have a company that needs a partner, let me know. And, you know, I got a few leads over time. It's now like a deluge, it's a, deluge. It's a steady stream of hard tech companies that are just really interested in an American partner. Uh, probably some of this is they can't get what they need from the international supply chain relationships. But I think also the just the you know buy American kind of partner with American companies is resonating too, and they want to do their part. Um, the rebuild way, which is our set of leadership principles that you read uh, last time, it continues to define the culture, and it's, it's turning out to be really valuable as a way to make sure as we get bigger that we keep the culture consistent. Um, and our biggest challenge right now is hiring enough people. So just hiring enough skilled people like everybody, from people in the shop floor to engineers. Um, but I think with the right culture, right leadership, you know, we'll we'll find those people and they'll be glad they can. If you were to think ahead to Pittsburgh's future and its potential in the years to come, what would you say that potential is? And what are the challenges that the city and its leaders will need to overcome to achieve it? Well, I, I think it has a really bright future. I mean, we've we've talked a little bit about, you know, kind of how technology may evolve in manufacturing, but but sort of generally for robotics and AI. I think the we go back to the conversation we had about the things that sustained Pittsburgh through the 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 challenges that it's had over the years, um, you know, going back to the '70s, and a, a lot of it is the, the the strong universities, the terrific civic infrastructure, really low cost of living, and you know now a highly skilled workforce. And I, I think you kind of put all that together, and it really bodes well for the city's future. Um, I hope it maintains its humility. Um, 
you know, cause I think that's a very special thing about Pittsburgh. And, you know, I don't know that with a bunch of outsiders coming in that it wouldn't change, but in, in addition to being humble, it also has to continue to be bold and make investments in, you know, new technologies and supporting industries of the future. And I think Pitt, CMU, all the other local colleges will be vital in steering those investments. And I really do think it's already on a path to repair and exceed the losses that it suffered, you know, during the 70s. And I assure as heck I'm going to be rooting for it along the way. Jeff, thank you for taking the time to share all these memories and to talk about Pittsburgh. Of course, Todd, it's a pleasure. Um, thanks for highlighting what Pittsburgh has to offer. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm a huge fan and I'll, I'll be a fan for the rest of my life. Pittsburgh native Jeff Wilkie is an investor and former Amazon executive and the co-founder and chairman of Rebuild Manufacturing. See the show notes for a link to my podcast conversation last year with Jeff Wilkie and Rebuild CEO Miles Arnone. And keep listening for some bonus content, more of Jeff Wilkie's memories of growing up in Pittsburgh. Also see the show notes for a link to all of GeekWire's coverage from our recent return trip to the Steel City. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Thanks for listening. Are there any specific moments or memories, experiences that you had that truly impacted you growing up in Pittsburgh? Well, there are a lot. A lot of them are sports related. Um, Pirates games are amazing, but there's there's a specific Steeler game that I remember. So it was the 1979 AFC Championship game at Three Rivers, and uh, when the game was over, this really nice man from Houston stood up after his Oilers had lost. And despite his obvious anger during, at, during the game at the call over Mike Renfro in the end zone, whether he was in or out, he turned around, handed me his cowboy hat, truly, and said, son, your team's going to win the Super Bowl. And I walked out with the cowboy hat. Okay. Do you still have uh, it? No. No. <laughs> I think my mom probably has it. My mom got in some move. You know, my mom probably has it somewhere, but... Um, Okay, so this is a funny one. My one home run in high school baseball. Uh, the, we didn't have a shortstop senior year. They, I started at shortstop. I was, let's say, erratic with my arm from, from the hole. Um, and I was a line drive hitter. Okay. So uh, I hit a home run over center field fence. And I actually didn't believe that the ball went over the center field fence. You talk about the ultimate in like, you know, humility on the baseball field. I, I stopped at second base and I'm standing there proud of myself for hitting a double. And the coach is yelling at me. The third base coach is yelling at me. He has to run across the field and drag me to complete the home run trot, uh, which is, you know, fairly sad. <laughs>